In Australia, in the early 1970s, Gough Whitlam was elected, riding a wave of protest and demands for change. We withdrew from Vietnam, removed the white Australia policy. Jermaine Greer published The Female Eunuch. We were certainly grappling with our sense of identity. And we found something that we could use to unify us, to represent our diverse culture and national identity. Something very, very special that turns 50 years old today. Ladies and gentlemen, I am John West, and this is the Australian Broadcasting Commission at the opening night of the Opera Theatre of the Sydney Opera House. Dr Scott Hill is the curator of the Museum of Sydney's exhibition. It's called The People's House, the Sydney Opera House at 50. Scott, welcome to you and happy birthday to the Opera House. Yes, indeed, Andy. Happy birthday to the Opera House. Five magnificent decades. In the days before the Opera House was officially opened, we know that communication more or less broke down. An architect, Jan Utzen, in fact, left the project before it was finished. The story goes that he was famously not invited to the opening of the Opera House, something of a snub, if you like. But in curating this exhibition, you've stumbled across some information that challenges that folklore. What was that? Well, but yes, the, the story of the non-invitation. It's almost legendary in the um, that wider story of the Opera House. When I actually studied architecture at university, I was told this story that Utzon had not been invited. Uh, he wasn't even mentioned at the opening of the Opera House. In the lead-up to uh, the exhibition, The People's House, I was going through government records at the State Archives of New South Wales, and I came across a letter, and it was a reminder to then-Premier uh, Robert Askin saying, well, you'll remember you told the press you were going to invite Mr. Utzon to attend. Well, it's getting awfully close. You really need to, to invite him. And this was totally news to me. And I turned the page, and much to my surprise, there was an actual copy of the official letter that had been sent to uh, Jörn and Liz Utzon, inviting them as guests of the New South Wales government to attend. It was a complete revelation to me because it went against everything that I'd ever been told, this sort of amazing story. I turned the next page, and there begins a letter that starts, Dear Mr Premier, and it goes on, and it was signed by Jörn Utzon himself. And what it was, his letter back saying effectively, well, thank you very much for the invitation, but it would be inappropriate for me to attend as a guest of the government when I would be bound to criticise decisions that have been made after my departure. Uh, Effectively, thank you for the invitation, but I can't attend. Um, And he wished um, the the Opera House very well and how how gratifying it was to him to see that the arts was was flourishing in New South Wales. But this was a complete complete revelation to me and I actually picked up the pile of documents and ran out to the front desk at the at the archive and said look at this it wasn't unknown at the time it was actually reported in the press that he had been invited and he had declined but it's entered this the folklore of the opera house and become sort of firmly entrenched and if you google you're not so not invited you'll find this story everywhere but here literally in my hand was the signed letter from Utzon declining the invitation. It was, it was an extraordinary thing to be reading. It just shows you that history always has nuance and I'm so glad that you've corrected the record here and that he also stated his reasons and his passion for the project despite the obvious disagreements. Going even further back, one of the biggest proponents and lobbyists to build the Opera House in the first place was Eugene Goosens, someone who's very well known to uh, employees of the ABC because his name adorns the uh, the theatre at the uh, right. ground ground level of Ultimo ABC uh, Centre. 
Now, Eugene Goosens thought we needed a performing arts venue to represent us all. And the name Opera House really brings to mind, well, high culture, opera. But the, the vision for the Opera House wasn't focused purely on the sort of high end of sophistication, was it? No, in fact, very far from it. So uh, Eugene Goosens, uh, he was um, an, an English uh, composer and conductor. And in 1947, he arrives here to be the conductor for the Sydney Symphony and the director of the Conservatorium of Music. And almost immediately, he makes this statement, Sydney must have an opera house. You're going to have world-class uh, opera. If you're going to have world-class uh, orchestras, for instance, you've got to have a venue that's worthy of them. And then when the, uh, the the plans and the idea for the Sydney Opera House go forward, it's very much going to be a performing arts venue, but it's going to carry this title of the Sydney Opera House. But the big thing is that's an honorific term. When you look at the, the great performing arts venues around the world, um, whether they be in, in, in London, in Paris, uh, in Milan, in San Francisco, for instance, they quite often carry these titles opera house. But what they're for is all of those performing arts. You might see um, concerts there. You might see theatre there. Uh, but it's this, this, this title which, as you say, it conveys this idea of the, you know, the fine arts, the high arts, but the pinnacle of the arts are going to be there. So we get to opening day, uh, Utson isn't there, although we now know because of your research he, he was invited and declined. Uh, the Queen is, Robert Askin, the Premier at the time, was. In fact, he said something in his speech that really epitomised the pursuit of the Opera House. Take a listen. This is indeed the People's Opera House. They have built it. They have financed it. And their continued support will ensure that here there will be performances which will bring that artistic and cultural satisfaction that must be a part of a truly rounded community. You really can hear this ideal about the egalitarian access to arts and culture, can't you? Very much, very much. And this was very much you know, when Joe Carl, who was the Premier when the project began, and when he's talking about the project, when he's describing it, it's going to be very much the people's house. But there you heard you know, Robert Askin describing and that's where this phrase, the people's house, really becomes quite entrenched. And then when you look at the ongoing presentations of the programming for that, really for that first year, once the doors have opened, it really reflects this. The, the range and the variety of production there is, it's almost bewildering, the, the range that, uh, of what you're seeing there. But it emphasises that this is far from an elitist building that it's performances and productions being put on there for everyone. The first official opera performance is Prokofiev's uh, epic War and Peace. And mm. so it starts off with quite, you could say, a highbrow tone. But then in the first year, which your exhibition uh, pretty much focuses in on, you have things like the Mr. Universe bodybuilding competition with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You have That's ACDC right. playing. You have Les Girls. You have a, a political rally. This is quite a range, you'd say a range of performances that don't currently uh, exist at the Opera House, wouldn't you? Oh, no, I, I disagree. I think when you look at the programming at the Opera House today, it is very much there. This is a building that is so very much is almost like the secular cathedral 
for Sydney and for New South Wales, uh, where you see all different forms of performances, whether it be uh, musical, operatic, whether it be drama, theatre, uh, cabaret, for instance. Uh, there's a lecture series taking place there next week. Um, but, yes, when you, when you look at that, that first year even, um, and there's a whole section of, of the, the exhibition, The People's House, where we really focus in on that first year, and it's incredible what's going on there. Yes, you've got you've got your opera and your symphonies, and you've got your ballet. There's Pagliacci, there's Sleeping Beauty. You've got Leonard Bernstein and New York Philharmonic. So some very big international acts. And then you've got Akadaka. You, yep, and you've got the Bee Gees. Uh, two really quite amazing ones are the L'Oreal Night of Stars. There's a hairdressing um, expo that takes place in the concert hall. <laughs> they build an ice skating rink in the concert hall to do no. escapades on ice. Yep. There's the Lay Girls 10-Year Spectacular. And then a particular favourite of mine is the, the Sunday Nights series, which starts as well. And this is a whole series of popular entertainment that takes place in the concert hall, and they're also broadcast then uh, on television. Um, you've got Petula Clark, Diane Carroll, Olivia Newton-John gets her big start there in this series. But you also get the Carol Burnett show, so the American comedian that incredibly famous comedian we will just do one of our shows but we will we can't ignore and we're certainly not about to ignore the fact that we are in this marvelous edifice and uh with the australian people her two performances then uh, which take place like within weeks of the opening are filmed and they're broadcast across the united states so immediately this new building has opened people all around the world are actually seeing on their tvs productions from there so it's already being portrayed as a venue with incredible variety uh, taking place there. Is it just because at that time in Sydney and New South Wales, the only other sort of large venues would have been the Sydney Cricket Ground? There wouldn't have been an entertainment centre. There certainly wasn't Homebush. Is this why? It was basically the biggest covered space you could fit a television broadcast of any kind in. It was Well, it was certainly the biggest when it was completed. There is uh, there's the Sydney Town Hall uh, the very large space there. There's all the other various town halls around Sydney. So some of these venues were there, but it's it's like Eugene Goosens was saying, you've got to have a tailor-made venue that's really going to come up to the, the standards of these world-class productions that you're wanting to, to put on. There was, of course, a strong push towards acknowledging First Nations people before the doors opened. It was playing host to a range of performers who were helping to test the performance spaces. One of those was Harold Blair. He was the first Indigenous singer to perform at the Opera House. Tell me about him. Ah, Harold Blair, yes. Well, of course, Tubagali, I mean, this is the the much, much older name for, for Benelong Point. It's been a site for performance, you know, for song, for dance, for ritual, for tens of thousands of years, going way back into, into deep time. In terms of Harold Blair, before the Opera House formally opens, uh, before you have your gala opening, before you have your, your official royal opening, you have a whole series of other performances, and they're being used to test out the venue. How do the acoustics work? How does back of house work? You know, how is everybody getting in and out? Testing all those aspects of, of the new venue. So on the 28th of July in 1973, you have a double bill presented of one act Australian written and composed operas. And these are uh, Dalgiri by James Pemberthy uh, with a libretto by Mary Durack and the fall of the House of Usher. The, yeah, the important thing about these is that they're actually composed by Australian uh, composers. 
and they're being put on by uh, the Conservatorium for Music, and they're going to be in the Opera Theatre, what we now call the Joan Sutherland Theatre. And the, the lead's male singer in Dalgiri is by is Harold Blair. He's really important. He's a, a woolly woolly man. He's from Queensland, but he's the first Aboriginal man who is to be trained professionally in opera. Uh, he's come from the Melbourne Conservatorium in, in Melbourne in 1949, and so he takes on this role. And what it really highlights is that there has been this ongoing uh, presence of Indigenous and First Nations performers right through the history of, you know, of the Opera House as we know it today, from before that official opening uh, right through to you know, productions today by you know, the Bangara Dance Theatre, for instance. I do want to ask you about the standard of these world-class productions because in 1974, Dame Joan Sutherland performed for the first time in the theatre that would uh, be named for her in The Tales of Hoffman. And it seems that she herself had some hesitations about the venue. Take a listen. Have you been able to form any appreciation of the Opera House so far? None whatsoever. It looks fine, but I understand there are lots of problems and I can see a few. What, such as what? Oh, well, the orchestra pit is too small, the stage is too small, it's absolutely minute. People have to get around it, I suppose. So how was she received for that performance, given her kind of, uh, you might say, negative uh, feedback for the Opera House? Oh, it was a tremendous success. And, and Sutherland went on to have a, a spectacular career. One of the great productions, that's one we, that we feature in the exhibition, is Lucrezia Borgia. Uh, in 1977, and why that performance was so important was that it was the first really in-house production um, that the opera had done. And by that we mean that every aspect of the production was done in Australia, all aspects of the design, the choreography, um, the, the direction, for instance, was all actually produced here. And we have a spectacular costume, one that she actually wore in that opera um, featured in the exhibition. But yes, her, her career, it's, it's synonymous with the Opera House. It's such a special building for all Australians and I really, I'm really glad that your exhibition focuses in just on the first year because you really do get an interesting slice of Australia to make some interesting comparisons with. Uh, fascinating to talk with you. Dr Scott Hill has been my guest. He curated this exhibition. It's called The People's House the Sydney Opera House at 50. You can see it at the Museum of Sydney, but if you can't get that, uh, get there to see it uh, in person, you can check it out online as well. Great to talk to you, Scott. That's a pleasure, Andy. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.